whereas philosophy is certainly not self-expression. And philosophy, of course, is argument. Uh, and you can say, well, is the conclusion true or is the argument valid? Welcome to the second season of Five Questions, the podcast where we don't ask if the conclusion's true or the argument valid, but what they say about you. I'm your host, Kieran Setia. In each episode, I ask a philosopher five questions about themselves. There are two ground rules. One is that follow-up questions are allowed. The other is that the question I'm about to ask doesn't count as one of the five. So could you introduce yourself, tell us a bit about who you are and what kind of philosophical work you do? I'm Michelle Moody Adams. I teach philosophy at Columbia University in the philosophy department there. My specialties are moral and political philosophy, both uh, historical and contemporary. I do mostly theoretical work, a little bit of applied, and of late I've been focusing my attention primarily on issues in political philosophy, like democratic citizenship and the role of social movements in making democracies better. Well, this may come up in later questions, and we can certainly come back to it, but I wanted to ask if your work has been shaped or how your work has been shaped by the last few years of political chaos in America. It definitely has, sometimes quite directly, where I'm responding to trends and currents in political life. But I'll say just quite broadly, I've always been moved by the idea that uh, you can have a kind of cautious optimism about the normative force of rational self-scrutiny, even in public life, even in you know the rough and tumble life of, of um, complex democracies. And so I'm always attuned, very attuned to expressions of disagreement and of democratic concern about injustice in society or in the ways in which we might reform it. Lately, I've been doing work on the role of social movements in making space for justice, as I call it, and everything from the way they have helped to reshape the argument in the public square, but also the way they have helped us understand the connection between art and memory and politics, as in uh, some of the things that emerged this summer during the global Black Lives Matter movement around monuments, memorials, especially Confederate monuments. Well, that is all extremely interesting, and probably we will touch on some of it later. I'm going to ask you the first official question inspired by Iris Murdoch, who begins each episode of the podcast telling us that philosophy is not self-expression, but who also wrote, to do philosophy is to explore one's temperament, and yet at the same time to attempt to discover the truth. So would you say your temperament influences your philosophical work, and if so, how? There is such a close connection there. I mean, I think it's probably true, frankly, of everyone who goes into philosophy that their temperament in some way suits them for it. But I've sometimes said in my own case that I didn't choose philosophy, but that philosophy chose me. And I've actually mostly meant by that, that philosophy spoke very intensely to something in my temperament. I I think of it as a kind of tension between what people sometimes call the melancholic temperament, the tendency towards introverted, analytical, intellectual approach to experience. And on the other hand, the so-called sanguine temperament, uh, the tendency to much more extroverted, socially active and engaged connection to the world. 
And I, I think that blend in my temperament has set for me a kind of problem that I needed to solve. I, I recognized it, frankly, when I was very young, even in, in elementary school. How do you combine the stance of a committed spectator, deeply committed to understanding the world, with the, the sort of obligations of action to somebody who sees the need because they are interested in this engagement to trying to change the world sometimes when it's imperfect. So for me, this tension between spectator and actor, those are kind of human terms, but I think they make sense of the quest I've been on. And actually, I, I can say two very quick things about how when I was at a very pivotal moment, I'll say intellectually in my life, I initially thought that solving that tension solving the problem, the spectator-actor tension, would, uh, for me, be a matter of becoming a Unitarian minister. I was actually raised in a Unitarian church in a university community. It was very intellectual in many regards. We actually read a lot of philosophy. And the winter break of my sophomore year in college, I wrote a letter to the dean of the Divinity School, which I expected I would apply to and, and try to you know, get training for this role. And he said to me, this was, I'll give you the year, it was 1977, 76, I'm sorry. He said to me, it's a liberal church, the Unitarian Church is, but they're not liberal enough to be ready for a black woman minister. Wow. You might want to think about something else. And I've, you know, over the years, I told people, I told my mother and father right away. Some people say he shouldn't have said that to me. Others say he should have, but whether he should have or shouldn't, it changed my sense of how to solve the problem. So, but the oddest thing of all, this is the really oddest thing, the bit about being called. I'm in uh, a course that spring after that experience on Plato's dialogues, early and middle mostly. And we had read the symposium and I, I'd read it very carefully. And, but I'm sitting in class during the, one of the few days we were talking about it. And the professor read a passage out loud. I won't remember now which passage it was, and I, it was almost like I heard the call. Why did I say that to myself that way? Because it was, here you are, the, the, these philosophers, well, these people, including philosophers, are sitting around a banquet table, basically doing this very socially engaged, active involvement with each other, talking about friendship, talking about love, talking about very earthy, detailed, concrete facts of life. And before you know it, that has become a vehicle, a kind of transporting of vehicle for talking about what it is to really have a rational insight into beauty and truth and good. And I thought, wow, philosophy's the thing for me. I'll tell you, it took me a long time to realize I could comfortably answer the call without feeling like I was giving up on the, on the action side. But I do think over time, I mean, at this stage, after 37 years in the profession, I feel like maybe I have struck the right balance. But that's, that's the trajectory of my spectator-actor struggle, which I think is very temperamental for me. I mean, did you find in college symposium-like community of peers? Were there other students and other people who were interested in philosophy who you could share these conversations with? You know, I did. It was very small. It was a very small college. I went to Wellesley College, um, and at the time, I think it was still under 2,000 students total. So you only had 400, you know, or 500, rather, in a class. 
and philosophy wasn't the largest major, but I did find such a group. None of them saw themselves as going on in philosophy, and I was not myself sure that I would do it either. So we weren't, it wasn't a sense of a professional or pre-professional engagement. We just really did. I'm actually still very close friends with one of the people who was part of that group. She did not go on in philosophy at all, but we can still, you know, I, we talk now about life and politics and we can still make references to some of the things, particularly around the Plato's dialogues of all things. So this second question may take us to Wellesley or it may take us earlier or later. The question is, who was your most inspiring teacher? Oh, I feel almost guilty making a choice, but I will just come out and say that all told, all things considered, the most inspiring teacher I've had was John Rawls. I'm still actually close friends with one of my very fine teachers from high school. I remained close friends with several of my teachers from Wellesley in philosophy, but no one had quite the effect on me. And there are really a few things, if I can just take a minute yeah. and kind of say, first of all, Rawls was just an extraordinarily generous and kind human being. I had hoped that when I entered graduate school, I, I went to graduate school hoping and expecting to work on his theory. I'll say in a moment, though, why that didn't work out. He's also an extraordinarily generous reader of other people's work. He would always tell his students, even if they didn't go on to to be supervised by him, you know, in their in the PhD work. You knew this from even the standard class you'd take, where he had a theory about what it meant to treat another text properly, giving it its due, offering, he would say, the best version of a theory before you even think about trying to criticize it. That's how he thought you learned the most. And I think this actually is reproduced in the preface to perhaps two of the collections of his lectures, the lectures on the history of moral philosophy, and I think the lectures on the history of political philosophy. He, it's actually reproduced, I think, in that preface. He was also an ex extraordinarily supportive supervisor of people who didn't look like them. I feel like I need to stress that because he's come under, I'll actually use the word attack lately, from some, I think, well-meaning political philosophers who see him as aligned with a certain kind of liberalism that they believe isn't sufficiently attentive to the, the importance of racial injustice. I think they're wrong on that, but they are really wrong on the thought that he, Rawls might be in, in service of or in league with some kind of anti-Black racism. Some of the most influential women philosophers in moral and political philosophy, some of whom uh, I knew while I was uh, in graduate school, but they are people who studied with Rawls. Uh, he has several African-Americans and, and even one African, who one of my very first philosophy teachers actually was an originally Nigerian man, I think he became an American citizen, named Ifani Minkiti, who actually introduced me to Rawls in a class at Wellesley. Uh -huh. And when I hear people saying that Rawls is racist, or at least that his theory is racist, and so he's by, you know, by association racist, it just pains me deeply. I once was going to quit philosophy. He found out. He said, you can't do this. He even said it was him and Hillary Putnam. They said, we heard you're unhappy. What can we do to help? Nobody else, I think, would have had the 
commitment to his students as, you know, as a mentor. Now, he's not, he wasn't even a friend of mine then. And so I'll, I'll just say that if you put those things, three things together with the fourth most important fact, that he was just an extraordinary philosopher of remarkable achievements, even if you end up not agreeing with the theory, the quality and the importance and the internal integrity of the vision is so extraordinary. If any of us could reproduce something like that in our lives, I think we, our lives would have been really worthwhile. So I, he was such an inspiration. It's actually been surprising to me that he hasn't come up before. I think this is the first time in the podcast that someone has talked about Rawls, although there have been people who interacted with him earlier. And he does have, for me at least, a kind of aura of being an amazing teacher. I have a question that is, is sort of substantive and maybe too substantive for this podcast. So perhaps this won't make it into the version that airs, but I want to ask you about it, which is, I, I suppose one of the things that people are reacting to with hesitation in roles that could connect with race, but is more general, is the sort of utopian element, the idea that although it's realistic, it's a realistic utopia that he's describing. And there's a kind of ambivalence about whether that is the right way to do political philosophy, or instead, one should just begin with concrete injustice in the world now. Do you have a kind of a take on that debate? I do. I think about this a lot. I have uh, this worry about the ideal theory versus non-ideal theory question. At virtually every juncture of my own work in political philosophy, I am not myself, after all that I've said about how deeply inspirational I found him, I am not myself a Rawlsian, quite deliberately not. In fact, I probably am an anti-Rawls in many regards. It's not However, because of the ideal, non-ideal theory, I think a lot of people have misunderstood one of the guiding thoughts. I mean, I believe that one thing philosophy can do, whatever else it can do, is it can provide a kind of inspiring, hopeful vision of what political life could look like if we got our institutions ordered in the right way, if we were able to encourage people to conform to the demands of the institutions in the right way. And I think in the end, that's really all that Rawls meant. I think there's a new kind of industry, you know, philosophical industry, for better or worse, that's arisen around this notion, oh, the ideal, non-ideal theory debate. And there's really quite a benign and in some ways quite constructive element to what Rawls was doing. After all, if you don't know where you want to go, how will you know when you've gotten there? Even somebody like Martin Luther King would have insisted, you know, that I have a dream speech in the March on Washington. It's to me, it is a version of the same thing that Rawls is doing when he offers a realistic utopia. Now, is it the utopia that will solve the problems of racial injustice? That I think is an open question. I happen to think it could be, but that the problem with Rawls's view is, in fact, that he doesn't understand that purely rational argument. I don't mean reason, but discursive argument and reason giving, I don't think will get us there. I think particularly given his interest in you know, extreme pluralism, even when he calls it reasonable pluralism of comprehensive conceptions, if you're confronting that and your worry is about creating stable and just institutions, 
not there now and people's comprehensive conceptions are pulling them in different directions, sometimes you can get past it by argument, but sometimes you need, I think this is very platonic actually, or maybe it's even Socratic. Sometimes you need something that turns people's sights to something different. And then you can come back at them with argument, whether it's ideal or non-ideal, to bring them on the rest of the way. Again, I, that may be one of the things that made the Plato's dialogues course so moving for me. I've never let go of that thought that even someone who deeply values reason and rationality can acknowledge that not everything that allows us to be rational and to engage in, even to engage in rational self-scrutiny, is something we can be led to do by argument alone. And I think Rawls gives you great arguments, marvelous arguments. That's not the only thing you need to get past deep disagreement of the kind he rightly recognized. Well, there may or may not be a bridge from that to question three, which is about things that sort of overlap with philosophy and are not discursive argument. So is there a work of art that you love in part for its philosophical depth? Yes, I I am somebody who loves art generally in the visual arts. I love sculpture and painting, and I also love architecture. My example of the thing that I think is most compelling, both artistically and philosophically, the memorial to Colonel Shaw and the Massachusetts 54th Regiment that is at the top of Boston Common that was done by St. Gaudens, dedicated in 1897. It seems to me maybe one of the most sublime expressions of how to achieve racial reconciliation in the midst of deep disagreement and even dominance of white supremacy, et cetera, doesn't mean that it actually solved our political problem. But I think that when you look at this sculpture and you look at it also where it is now, it's the first stop right now on the Black Heritage Tour in Boston. It's a marvelous piece. You know, I I can tell you just a few things about why. It turns out that it's one of only three 19th century monuments to depict black soldiers in military service. This is so important because it, there were 180,000 black soldiers who volunteered for to fight in the Civil War. And I'm not a militaristic person. I probably lean more towards the pacifist end. But I understand why people like Frederick Douglass believed and wrote at length about why it was important for black males at that time, when they were the only ones who could fight, to say, look, I'm willing to take up arms against this white supremacist regime to fight for my own freedom. It's only one of three, and it's the only one to actually depict black soldiers in military uniforms. That's, though not the whole of it, it shows Colonel Shaw, the white leader of the regiment, it shows him on his horse, but he's in the midst of the black soldiers, very much unlike the convention of many Civil War monuments where either the officer is riding alone or he's riding alone on a horse and he's on a giant pedestal somewhere way above everybody. In this, they're in the midst of each other. William James actually gave a speech at the 1897 dedication of the memorial. I think it's actually a little long-winded. I'm not sure I necessarily recommend the whole thing. But there are parts of where he says there's something about depicting these courageous black soldiers fighting besides courageous white soldiers, many of whom were, in fact, of a different class, 
that makes the monument actually an expression of the true meaning of the Civil War, this fight for you know freedom and ending slavery. He calls it a noble work of bronze. And for me, I, I thought it was philosophically important even before I had found the oration from William James. And then when I read it, I thought, wow, maybe there is something really about this sculpture. Now, one last thing to be said about it, Karen, there are a couple of deficiencies. The first of the two, I think, are most important that the original statue did not list all the names of the black soldiers who died in the battle at Fort Wagner that it commemorates, had the names of the white officers. And it it wasn't until sometime in the 1980s a committee of citizens got together in Boston and they said, look, we need to fix this. And people fought about this. They thought, well, well, it's not true to history, but it's actually helped make it feel like it really is more about reconciliation. And then the second point I'll make is that St. Gaudens was a funny guy. He did these very elaborate studies in his studio with real people posing for him to be able to sculpt properly the figures of the African-American soldiers. But in his notes from the days that he's making the sketches, the most horrible racial epithets and dismissive, you know, anti-Black racism expressed. So he was struggling himself, I think, to try to totally let go of the kind of racist conventions, even of representation. But I really would recommend to anybody who cares about racial reconciliation, cares about justice, Take a look at this. You can't miss it. I, I think it just bodies forth this very platonic ideal of, you know, beauty and truth that bodies forth in this thing. Well, that is an amazing case study. That's really fascinating. I, I have walked past it many times. I've even looked at it. I have never really looked at it, you know, taken it in. And I will I will go back and do that. I'm going to ask you a question we may have anticipated, because you mentioned earlier that you considered being a Unitarian minister. And we can go back to that or we can explore other alternatives. But the question is, if you weren't a philosopher, what would you do? You know, Kieran, because that option so quickly and decisively was off the table for me, there are just so many other things in life to do than to fight, you know, somebody who doesn't want me to show up in their church. And so I could tell you that what was always in the background, I'm from Chicago, architecture and the shaping of space, both internal space and public space, you know, in public square is so critical to my orientation in the world. It even kind of, for me, it helps solve the spectator actor problem in many ways. I can say more about that later, but what I have seen in the architecture I love the most, and I would say the the architect I would most wish to be like would be Frank Lloyd Wright with all his flaws and his arrogance, because he solved another problem that I think is critical as a human being trying to, you know, make moral sense of the world. And that's the kind of question of the relationship between humanity, between artifice, the things we produce, and the natural world. I think he actually called it organic architecture. So the prairie houses that are very central to the part of the world I grew up in, including around the University of Chicago, one that I spent a lot of time in was Roby House before it was actually declared a, some kind of historic you know, site. But the prairie house generally, Unity Temple in Evanston. But for me, the, the true masterpiece, I, my husband and I made a pilgrimage to it when we, we were teaching for about nine years at Indiana University Bloomington 
and had an occasion to travel for something that would be in the Philadelphia area. And my husband said, you've always wanted to go to Falling Water, right? I could not, it was like making a pilgrimage. To me, that is the most beautiful thing that any human being has ever built. To me, more beautiful than the beautiful Parthenon, more beautiful than Christopher Wren, St. Paul, which I, both of which I think are amazing, more beautiful you know, than the Vatican. To me, the blending of nature and art, the, the kind of harmony when you walk inside, I mean, partly because he did design all of the inter interior furnishings and so forth, the color scheme, it is just a marvel what he manages to do with that. And it is a solution to a problem. I, I think that's maybe very much for me what I think good intellectual work does, is it says, here's something that is puzzling. Here's a kind of breach in our experience, you know, black and white, racial reconciliation, spectator, actor. For me, it's the harmony of humanity and nature. The studio, the home and studio in Oak Park, he actually built around a tree that he didn't want to destroy. I think the tree has died since. Yeah, so I would be an architect because it would be another problem to solve. I love Falling Water too. I was a pit for many years. And so it was a place that it was easy to go to. And the thing I remember, apart from the situation of the house, I remember very vividly, there are windows, corner windows that open outwards in, in a way that's sort of completely unexpected when you first go. And the boundary between the human space and the natural space just sort of dissolves. I'm glad you mentioned those windows because that's one of the things, oddly, that stands out. You know, I love being outside and getting my picture taken by the thing and looking at the water. And But there's something about these little touches that he did not let anything go unaddressed. And you're right, the nature seems to be kind of blended in with the artifice and your, the human and the natural world. It's just so extraordinary. I envy you, though, the chance to, to go. I've only been once. And I haven't been back since they did some repair on the cantilevers. Yeah, it was. Yes. Or concrete. Yeah. It was an engineering problem that I think they fixed or were, were fixing. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you a final question that takes us back to Iris Murdoch. This is question five. It begins with a quote. It's always a significant question to ask about any philosopher. She wrote, what is she afraid of? So what are you afraid of? Yeah, there's a long list, but I'll give you the top of the list. I've become more aware of it in the last two weeks or so. And that's, as somebody who has a very cautious, but very real optimism about the power of self-scrutiny, rational self-scrutiny, both individually and collectively, that we can stop, we can say, what are we doing? Why are we doing it? How could we do this better, perhaps? Or if it's right, what do we do to preserve it? I am afraid whenever I encounter a moment in history, I could tell you it would be 1968 when I was a little kid was one of these. There have been other moments. I would say the World Trade Center destruction of that was another moment when people seem to reject or renounce responsibility for rational self-scrutiny. That terrifies me. I always think, because I am a cautious optimist, that we can, as a species, maybe even individually, pull ourselves back from the brink. Sometimes we get very far to the edge. I think Nazi Germany was really far to that edge. 
we did with, you know, the language and, and practice of human rights and so forth and a new international order in the 40s. But then there's the Cold War, of course. But we, we can pull ourselves back. But I am terrified by the current moment. I'm trying not to be so terrified that I right now can't do my philosophy, actually. And I've been very fortunate that I have this semester a course on ethics. Starts with Mill, who is the you know eternal optimist and believes in progress and so forth. But the current moment, the failure of self scrutiny, and the, not just failure, but the renunciation of it, just makes me very afraid. And I hope other people may be afraid in the same way, maybe willing to say, "We can't. This is not how human beings should or can live. We can't do this." Yeah. No, I, I share that feeling, the fear and, and the hope too. Just for context for listeners, I'm not sure when this will air, but this is being recorded the week before the Biden inauguration, the week after the attempted insurrection at the Capitol. And Michelle, I'm really grateful for you for making time to talk to me. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed our conversation very much. Michelle Moody Adams is Joseph Strauss Professor of Political Philosophy and Legal Theory at Columbia University. She's the author of Fieldwork in Familiar Places and a forthcoming book, Making Space for Justice, Social Movements, Collective Imagination, and Political Hope. Thanks for listening to Five Questions. <laughs>